welcome to the public morality. Gerald R. Ford was the nation's 38th president, but how much do we know about him? Beyond being the nation's only unelected president and the one who courageously pardoned Richard Nixon in wake of the Watergate scandal, there's a man far more complex than his public persona. This is the persuasive, eloquent, and dispassionate argument articulated by renowned author and presidential historian Richard Norton Smith in his latest book, An Ordinary Man, The Surprising Life and Historic Presidency of Gerald R. Ford. Richard Norton Smith, welcome to the public morality. Oh, hey, thank you for uh, inviting me. Well, I happen to know um, that you are fond of musicals. <laughs> That's so, funny. Uh, I wasn't happy with the Tony Awards, by the way, but, uh, well, but <laughs> I, I am very fond of musicals. So I am commissioning you, sir, to write the following musical. It's entitled Leslie King to Gerald R. Ford Jr. Tell me about that script. It would be very dark for the first uh, 10 or 15 years, and it would be sprinkled with uh, plot twists and um, surprises, really almost from beginning to end. Uh, first of all, um, Wesley King indeed is the future Gerald Ford of the, the 38th president of the United States, uh, born in Omaha in, uh, in 1913. Uh, two weeks after his birth, his um, Father, Wesley King Sr., uh, walked into his wife's room with a butcher knife, threatening to kill mother and son. And Dorothy King then, eventually Dorothy Ford, uh, would be probably the heroine, certainly of Act One. She managed a couple of days later to slip out of the house with her infant and across the Mississippi River, board a train for Chicago and eventually found her way to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where, by the way, she couldn't become a church member because she was a, a divorcee, but it didn't keep her from attending church where she met and eventually married a man named Gerald Ford. Now he had his own skeletons in the closet. One of the things I discovered in writing this musical was that uh, Gerald Ford Sr. had of bigamist father who died in very suspicious circumstances in a train accident uh, with his, um, shall we say, very common wife. She survived. Um, I do not know, and I may never know, whether the future president actually knew the details of his uh, grandfather's, his uh, step-grandfather's colorful life. Um, that's one of the perhaps secrets that uh, Wesley King, a.k.a. Gerald Ford Jr., took with him to the grave. Not counting uh, President Biden, uh, only four men have served shorter terms than President Ford. How did you amass 800 pages from uh, 
from a man whose time in office is much closer to William Henry Harrison than Franklin Roosevelt? Well, it's a very good question. It's a question in some ways I asked myself at the outset. I did not expect to write 832 pages. Um, and yet I have to tell you, I have a very good editor uh, and, and he over and over again uh, emphasized that he didn't want me to cut the 832 pages. He, he thought it was all justified. Let's look at, the, at Gerald Ford, just back off. This is a man who was a co-founder of America First at Yale Law School, uh, subsequently resigned, applied to be an FBI agent, was blackballed personally by J. Edgar Hoover because of involvement with that isolationist organization. Fought in the sir, war sir can you just just can you just for a moment explain to our listeners what America First was? So absolutely, because it's very different from its modern connotation. America First was an offshoot of a disillusioned generation of young people, mostly college students like Ford, who looked back at World War One and saw broken promises, um, and saw Europe apparently headed uh, for a, a repeat of the uh, catastrophe of, of the First World War. And understandably, uh, wanted the United States to have no part in it. Now, the irony is that at the same time that Ford was part of this organization, he left it to go to Philadelphia that summer to be part of the crowd chanting, we want Wilkie at the Republican convention. Wendell Wilkie being the most internationalist uh, of Republican candidates who, quite frankly, agreed with President Franklin Roosevelt um, that we needed to provide all possible assistance to Britain, short of soldiers, um, and supported the peacetime draft. So it's a very curious uh, mix of political instincts. Also, by the way, it bears mentioning that Gerald Ford, after the war, entered politics as an insurgent, taking on a corrupt Republican political machine that ran Grand Rapids and for a while ran the state of Michigan. In 1948, this newly minted internationalist runs against an entrenched Republican isolationist congressman against all odds. He beats him in the primary, is elected that fall. Uh, in a few years, the old bulls who run the House come to him tell him that they have uh, selected him to be one of five members of the super secret committee that oversees the CIA and all intelligence operations. Guess what? 10 years later, history repeats itself when Lyndon Johnson sets up the Warren Commission and to the surprise of everyone, not least of all, Ford asks Ford that a very junior member of the Republican leadership to be on the commission. Why? because Ford had impressed members of both parties that he was the classic workhorse, not a show horse, uh, and he could be trusted. Um, eventually he becomes, again, insurgent. He takes on the uh, Republican House leader, a guy named Charlie Halleck from Indiana after the Goldwater debacle. He beats him, sets up a whole new way of doing business, uh, creates the first think tank, to assist the Republican minority to come up with Republican proposals for fighting poverty, um, for protecting the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so by 1973, 
when Vice President Spiro Agnew is in serious legal trouble. And by the way, one of the revelations, one of the reasons why this book is 832 pages was I discovered from two impeccable sources who have not spoken in almost 50 years. Ford knew about Agnew's problem six months earlier than he ever publicly acknowledged. And uh, he wanted to replace him. And he did. He wasn't Nixon's first choice. Nixon wanted John Connolly, the governor of Texas, but he could not be confirmed. Ford uh, easily could be and was. Uh, he later said the eight months as vice president were the worst time of his life. He hated the job. Quite frankly, uh, he hated the tightrope that he had to walk, defending Richard Nixon as the Watergate waters lapped uh, at the White House doors, and at the same time maintaining his own reputation for integrity, because there's no doubt, um, and again, one reason why this book is as long as it is, is because I developed this process uh, almost day by day of where, Nixon, where Ford became disillusioned with his friend and the man who had made him vice president uh, and found ways to maintain enough distance from Nixon so that in August 1974, when Nixon resigns and Ford becomes president, he is seen as a legitimate president in his own right and not, in effect, Richard Nixon's legacy. Um, and then, of course, you have the pardon. Nixon, uh, Ford spends the first month trying to get his hands around this job that he never aspired to, to deal with a declining economy, a fraying NATO alliance. He's got to pick a vice president. And yet he finds he's spending 25% of his time on Richard Nixon's tapes and papers and legal prospects. And for whatever it's worth, uh, Ford believed that Nixon would be indicted, that he would be convicted, uh, at least on obstruction of justice charges. And he was confronted with um, an impossible choice. Um, and he decided the only way, he wasn't forgiving Nixon, when he signed the pardon, he was trying to forget Nixon. And by that, I mean, he was trying to refocus the country's attention and the media's attention, frankly, on all of those problems and much more that I just mentioned. And the only way he could do that was to pardon Nixon. Um, um, I was going to ask you about the pardon later, but since we're talking about it now, I'm just going to jump because I want you to, to address this point about the pardon. Sure. If you look at the timeline um, and have been well into what could have been um, Gerald Ford's first term or second term, however you want to define that, but right. it was going to consume the entire time of, of, the, of, the, of the term he had left. Is that correct? Yeah, he had, uh, <clears throat> this is also new information. <clears throat> he had secured um, from back channels absolutely reliable assurances from the special prosecutor, a man named Leon Jaworski that it would be at least one and possibly two years before a Nixon trial could begin. Well, yeah, you do the math. That basically consumes Ford's uh, first term as president. And, and that was a major factor that he, uh, that he had to take into consideration. Now, people argue the pardon to this day. There are folks who, for example, claim that we wouldn't be in this problem with Donald Trump if, if Ford hadn't pardoned Nixon. I think that's a, a, a stretching hindsight a bit much. You know, we don't elect our presidents 
for their clairvoyance. We elect them for their uh, ability and willingness to make tough decisions, among other things. And um, history eventually will be the judge. Well, I want to uh, jump briefly back uh, before the Ford presidency. Uh, because there, I, I think beyond those major things that, that most people know or think they know about President Ford, um, obviously the pardon, Watergate, uh, those types of things. I, 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 think the, I think you do a wonderful job in, in telling stories about Gerald Ford, not necessarily President Ford, but about Gerald Ford that give us insight into President Ford. It's a sort of, you know, my, my take in one of the stories that I want to discuss uh, is Gerald Ford, the student athlete at the University of Michigan. And to tell that story, we have to go, we have to start in 1999 when he decides to publicly uh, lend his name in support of affirmative action. Start with 1999 and then sort of work back and tell us how do we get to Gerald Ford um, the student athlete and how those two connect. Well, I, in 1999, Lee Bollinger, who was then the president of the University of Michigan, um, and I believe a lawyer by training, um, found himself defending before the Supreme Court his university's admissions policies, both the, the college and the law school, <clears throat> and each of which uh, involved uh, a degree of affirmative action, uh, along with race being one of a number of factors that were taken into consideration. Uh, the fact is it was uh, politically radioactive. Bollinger really tried and, and was unsuccessful in getting anyone. This was a time when the Clinton White House was talking about mend it, don't end it. And, uh, and then to his, I think, mild astonishment, he, he learned that Gerald Ford um, would be willing, uh, at least in principle, to, to sign on to, a, for example, an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Well, <clears throat> uh, they had prepared one and uh, he tore it up. I worked with him on the, the replacement and he chose to make his argument as personal as possible, grounded in his own experience as an undergraduate athlete and his best friend and uh, roommate on the road on the football team a man named Willis Ward, who was the only African-American on the team. And in fact, the only African-American who had been fielded by a uh, University of Michigan coach um, in many, many years. And um, the, 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 the school was supposed to play in the University of Georgia. And they made it clear they would not take the field if Willis Ward was on it. That would be, you know, okay, Georgia wouldn't take the field. That's right, exactly. I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. And uh, the old jackets, I believe. Anyway, um, this posed a real crisis of conscience. Ford was appalled. Um, he uh, talked to his dad. He gave serious consideration to quitting the team. And then Willis Ford himself uh, urged him not to do so, urged him to play, and in effect, to to win. By the way, it bears noting this was a terrible Michigan team. They won one game that season, and the game they won was against Georgia Tech. 
Um, and there's this extraordinary moment. Willis Ward listened to the game on the radio. There's this amazing moment early in the second half where uh, one of the Georgia players approaches Ford near the line of scrimmage and uses the N-word. And on the very next play, Ford and a teammate uh, knock this guy senseless. They carry him off the field on a stretcher. Uh, and Ford subsequently tells his friend Willis Ward uh, that one, referring to the hit. Uh, that one was for you. Well, um, the sequel to the story is, in effect, what makes the story. By the way, Ford and, and Willis Ward remain friends for the rest of their lives. Um, after 1999 and the piece on affirmative action, uh, and the court, by the way, uh, ruled, uh, I guess you call it a split decision, but basically uh, led by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, they authorized um, the, uh, the admissions program to continue uh, as, as it existed. Later, there was an effort made following President Ford's death in 2006 to put his statue in the Capitol as one of the two statues that the state of Michigan has. And um, interesting enough, there were some conservative Republicans in the state Senate who did not publicly oppose this, but who were willing to let inertia um, defeat it. They, uh, they harbored some grudges over Ford's support of affirmative action, as well as his pro-choice uh, position. And on the last day of the session, this was about to die, when the Democratic Senate Minority Leader, Buzz Thomas, African-American from Detroit, stands up. And he says, let me tell you something about Gerald Ford. And he proceeds to narrate the story that I've just uh, told you. And he pauses and he said, and by the way, Willis Ward was my grandfather. And um, in the ensuing silence, the statue was gaveled through, and you can see it today in the rotunda of the Capitol, not far from a bust of Martin Luther King. Two men who each in their own way uh, reminded us that America is an unfulfilled promise, and the best of our history entails efforts to fulfill it. Uh, I, I would say that um, that story you just told has to be part of the musical that you're going to have commissioned you to write. <laughs> it would, <laughs> would be a great first act closer, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. It, it, would, it wouldn't <laughs> be a dry in the place. That'd be great. Uh, um, I have two more stories I want you to share. I'm just mm. going to give you, I'm going to give you two names. And this is doing, this is, now we're, we've jipped up to President Ford. I'm going to give you two names and let you take it from there because I think you can handle it. Uh, two stories. One is George McGovern and the other one is Jesse Owens. I'll let oh, you take gosh. it from there. Yeah. The book is bracketed by two acts of redemption, in a sense, at the presidential level. George McGovern, of course, was the Democratic senator, anti-Vietnam War uh, advocate, who ran against Richard Nixon in 1972 and uh, carried one state beside the District of Columbia. And uh, 
in the summer of 1975, much to his surprise, he found himself invited to the White House for a stag dinner hosted by the president. And he couldn't resist. He went up to 40, said, you know, Mr. President, Wendell Johnson never invited me to the White House. And he said, and you can be sure Richard Nixon never invited me to the White House. And Ford said, I know, George, that's why I asked you. Uh, he said, the house belongs to everyone now more than ever. Now, keep that thought. At the very end of the book is uh, a story that it seems to me as, as much as anything in the book goes to the heart of what you might call the unknown Gerald Ford. And maybe it's the best answer I have for why this book is 832 pages. Jesse Owens was, of course, the great champion, um, much more than an American hero, at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, where in front of a frowning Adolf Hitler, uh, he conclusively disproved Nazi racial theories by winning a, a number of medals. When he came back, there was a ticker tape parade for him in the lower, in the canyons of Manhattan, as I say. But he was pointedly not among those on the Olympic team who were invited to the White House by Franklin Roosevelt to receive the uh, plaudits of the nation. Forty years later, Gerald Ford resolved to make up for that, um, to put it mildly, oversight. Um, the 1976 Olympic team was coming back from Montreal, but to make the, uh, the welcome particularly special, indeed historic, Ford decided to ask Jesse Owens. And what's more, he would give Jesse Owens the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor uh, in the United States. And what makes the story even more extraordinary is, of course, that Jesse Owens and Gerald Ford had a mutual friend, Willis Ward. And um, it was Willis Ward who eventually had, uh, had an executive position at the Ford Motor Company who uh, hired Jesse Owens who had literally been unable, despite his heroics, despite his celebrity, to find a decent job to support his family. Um, in any event, Ford used the occasion to pay tribute to Owens, uh, but also for him, this was personal. This wasn't just a, a public event. He remembered and he reminisced in some detail about the track meet that he attended of course, Michigan and Ohio were at our rivals. And he saw Jesse Owens break more than one world record that day. This was before he went to Berlin. The great irony, of course, is that if Willis Ward had not been so demoralized by the failure of the University of Michigan to, uh, to defend him at the time of the Georgia Tech game, that he might very well uh, have been in Berlin himself. But in any event, uh, the stories of George McGovern and Jesse Owens uh, together, uh, not only bracket the book, but I think they really do a pretty good job of introducing you 
to a Gerald Ford that you probably didn't know. Now, we're, we're coming up on five de decades since the uh, presidency of Gerald Ford. And with the benefit of time and the juxtaposition of the subsequent office holders, how might one look at the Ford administration differently today compared with January 20th, 1977? That is the, the ultimate question and the ultimate reason why the book is as long as it is. The fact is Gerald Ford went to his grave believing that his historical legacy would be defined by his efforts, which had some success, to restore a measure of public confidence to the presidency, uh, something that had been tarnished not only by the Watergate scandal, but frankly by Vietnam and the credibility gap that emerged from, from that war. Um, the fact is, with the benefit of those nearly five decades, we, we can see that Ford, it, Ford's presidency is much more than a coda to, to Richard Nixon's. Um, it, it's really much more of a curtain raiser to things that now we almost take for granted. Give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, economic deregulation began under Gerald Ford with the railroads and the financial services. Now, what, what do I mean by that? If you talk to a member of Generation X today, they, they find it hard to believe. <clears throat> there was a time not so long ago when Washington decided, you know, where planes could fly and what truckers could carry and where you could get a home mortgage. Um, all of that is gone. But, but what makes it historic is that what Ford began was, was in a bipartisan way embraced, first by Jimmy Carter, who was certainly uh, well known for airline deregulation, uh, and then by, by Ronald Reagan. So, um, and it, in fact, it became in, in many ways kind of a, a global cause. I mean, it got a new name, privatization, uh, and we can debate it. Um, uh, but, but we can't deny its historic significance. Foreign policy, in the summer of 1975, Gerald Ford signed something called the Helsinki Accords, severely criticized at the time from both the right and the left for people who thought that it was basically a concession to the old Soviet Union, um, conceding the uh, legitimacy of, of their Eastern European empire. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, um, we know that Helsinki planted the seeds of resistance in places like Poland and Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union itself. And so it, it is, in fact, a real milestone on the road to the collapse of the Soviet Union and, of course, with it, the, uh, the empire in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, those are just two examples of things that I would argue historically rank, you know, higher than... Um, than what Ford thought he would be entitled to. Um, I, I, I'll give you one of the quick example that nobody, nobody knows. Um, probably because the people around him didn't want anyone to know. On the eve of the Texas Republican primary in 1976, Ford is trailing Ronald Reagan. And in fact, Reagan will win the primary 100 to nothing in terms of delegates. Uh, it is the worst time politically to send Henry Kissinger to Africa with a 180 degree shift in American policy. Ford has decided no longer will the United States prop up white minority governments 
against the black majority, uh, beginning in Rhodesia. And of course, this sent a signal and not a particularly coded one to South Africa that the days of apartheid were numbered. Um, the people around Ford tried to talk them out of it. At, at the very least, they didn't want Kissinger to have a press conference in advance publicizing what he did. Um, Ford weighed them all off. He said it was the right thing to do. He, he lost to Texas primary, as I said, overwhelmingly. And he came very close to losing the nomination uh, to Ronald Reagan at the convention. But um, his conscience was clear. Now, I mean, those last two stories um, uh, bring, bring to mind, um, you talked about Helsinki and, and, and his stand on um, apartheid. It's interesting because when I'm, when I'm reading your book and I'm reading some of these stories that you're sharing, the majority of the time, Gerald Ford, for lack of a better word, was a legislator's legislator. I mean, he, he wasn't, I mean, this is a guy who went on what's my line as the minority leader. No one knew who he was. He was the legislator's <laughs> legislator. And in a very short amount of time, Gerald Ford goes from a legislator's legislator to having this executive executive branch experience, that's a really quick transformation. Could you could you say more about that piece? How was he able to do that? That's amazing, in my view. It, it, no, it is, and in fact, it, you you you've really alighted on something that goes to the heart of 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 this whole enterprise. I mean, I had to because I'd worked on Capitol Hill and I'd spent a little time around the White House, uh, and even I didn't realize until. I really got into this project, just how profoundly different legislative and executive leadership are. On the Hill, for example, you know, Harry Truman famously said the chief job of the modern president is persuasion. Now, we all know what that, we recognize that. That's the traditional Oval Office address, now obviously uh, uh, adjusted to fit the, the, the Twitterverse. But on Capitol Hill, Persuasion doesn't have to be eloquent. You, you don't speak in the language carved on granite, devised by speechwriters. Uh, a grunt and a half-finished sentence uh, may be all you need to convey. Uh, in fact, you may not want to be more explicit in conveying uh, your your wishes. Um, that's just you know one small element. Ford had to. Ford said, you know, near the end of his life, if he changed, if he could change one thing. He wished he'd been a better communicator. Um, and of course, he also suffered the, 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 the coincidence of timing. In the fall of 1975, Saturday Night Live went on the air. And they ridiculed Ford's uh, deficiencies um, and indeed probably did more than any other single factor to imprint a kind of uh, brand uh, negative, uh, raising questions of whether this guy was really up to the job. What Ford could do early in 76, confronted with this problem, he did something that no president since Harry Truman had done. Remember, Truman had been on in the Senate. He said they were the happiest years of his life, much like Ford had been in the House for 25 years. What that does is it gives you a tutorial in the inner workings of government. You know what buttons to push. And the best example of this was 
the federal budget. Gerald Ford stood up in front of a room full of several hundred reporters, all skeptics, all waiting for him to fall on his face. And he answered 56 questions until there were no more questions about the 1977 fiscal year federal budget. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting, but it is the best example of how Ford married, in effect, his congressional experience and the unique knowledge that that gave him. All those years on the Appropriations Committee, he, he knew that stuff backwards and forwards and presenting it in a, quote, presidential um, fashion. It, it didn't get him reelected, but it's also a, a feat that no president since Ford has attempted. Um, in reading your book, I, uh, unbeknownst to you, uh, I, I gave it uh, the, the Ford presidency, I, I put it in two parts. Vortex one and vortex two. Yeah. Vor vortex one is begins with the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission, goes through Vietnam, and then Watergate and ends with the pardon. How I mean, I mean, I'm gonna let you have at that, but how would you summarize what I just said uh, in Ford's participation in Vortex One? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. There, maybe the biggest surprise in a book that I think are full of surprises is just how historically significant and dramatic those years were. I mean, those were years, you know, people who look back, you know, <laughs> who think the 70s, much less the 60s, were an era of good feeling, um, probably need to be corrected. And I think probably this, you know, this book may be a corrective. Um, Ford was almost, you remember the movie Zelig? You know, Ford's yeah. a Woody um, Allen <laughs> figure. Ford's on the, and it goes back even further. When Douglas MacArthur gave his old soldiers never died speech, Ford was in the, on the floor of the house. Um, throughout the Cold War, um, the, obviously the, the Warren Commission, um, the, the Nixon presidency uh, up to and including Watergate. There's a wonderful little anecdote. In July of 74, the last month of the Nixon presidency, Vice President Ford learns of the death of Chief Justice Earl Warren, with whom he had had, quite frankly, a, a rather rocky relationship. But nevertheless, um, someone on his staff said, you know, it would be nice if you went up to the Supreme Court and paid your respects where, where Warren was lying in state. And of course, Ford instantly knew that that would, pardon me for saying, piss off Richard Nixon and everyone around Richard Nixon, who had never forgiven Warren for a host of imagined sins. But Ford being Ford, he went. And sure enough, <laughs> Richard Nixon was not happy. But at that point, you know, Richard Nixon didn't have a whole lot of clout over Gerald Ford or anyone else. Hey, and one other quick, quick story that goes to the heart of who this guy was, because, you know, here he is, he's just been elected House leader, you know, so he's the ultimate Republican partisan, right? Try, try to compare then and now. Uh, we don't have to name names. 
But very early after he becomes president, no, I'm sorry, becomes House Minority Leader, he's invited to Mississippi by the first Republican congressman since Reconstruction, elected in the Goldwater debacle, obviously in opposition to the Civil Rights Act, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Ford says he will come, but he, he wants to make sure that the dinner is integrated. And he is informed a few days later by Charles Everest, the late Charles Everest, brother of Medgar, that in fact, it is not going to be integrated. Uh, Ford, behind the scenes, uh, asked a, a trusted uh, deputy to do some investigating, and he confirms this fact. Anyway, make a long story short, um, the organizers of the dinner try to come up with a kind of uh, weaselly way around this, uh, and, and, and Ford wasn't by. Um, he said not only did he expect the dinner to be integrated, he expected individual dinner tables to be integrated. Well, the dinner was canceled. And um, that didn't get Ford any points uh, in Mississippi or probably elsewhere. But he wanted there to be a Southern Republican Party. Don't get me wrong. But he wanted it to be the party of Eisenhower rather than Goldwater. And most of all, he wanted it to be of Lincoln. Uh, let's. So let's let's talk about um, we we talked about some things already in, in in what I'm calling vortex one. Let's talk about vortex two. Yeah, vortex two is sort of the rebranding of the Republican Party circa 1976, and then Ford becomes almost he's the head of the party as president of the United States, but he's also be, increasingly becoming an outlier in the in in that type of republicanism. And is that true? And of course, he became much more so after 1980, uh, at which point he decided his political career was over. Um, in 1976, by the skin of his teeth, uh, he defeats Ronald Reagan for the Republican nomination. Um, the price of his victory is a, a very conservative platform, which, for example, includes a foreign policy plank that the Reagan forces were able to uh, secure at the convention, which, which basically denounced Henry Kissinger and all his works. Um, and it is also true that, also, by the way, Ford started out that campaign against Jimmy Carter 20, 30 points behind, depending on what poll you read. Uh, he lost by two points on election day. If 9,500 votes had changed in Ohio, and Hawaii, he would have had an electoral college victory. That said, um, 1976, again, with the benefit of perspective, we can now see 1976 as the swan song for what used to be called moderate, even Rockefeller Republicanism. Remember, Nelson Rockefeller had been forced off the ticket because of pressure from uh, Republican conservatives. And in 1980, Ford seriously thought about challenging Reagan again uh, for the nomination, only decided at the last minute that it would only split the party. Uh, and, and, and quite frankly, it would hurt Republican chances in the fall, something that he personally wished Ronald Reagan had taken into consideration 
four years earlier. I, I think it's fair to say Gerald Ford is not a kind of man who harbored grudges, but for a long time, he certainly came close where Reagan was concerned. Uh, he, he really believed that Reagan did not campaign for him, um, certainly anywhere near the way that Ford would campaign for Reagan in 1980. Anyway, after 1980, you're right. I think, uh, for example, Ford was much more outspokenly pro-choice as a former president than he ever had been in the White House. He and Mrs. Ford were very active, for example, taking pride in the first AIDS walks um, in and around uh, their home in Rancho Mirage. Um, I think Mrs. Ford had some influence. I think his children had some influence. But ultimately, I think Ford, after 1980, in many ways reverted to the younger Ford, the, uh, the, the uh, internationalist, um, who in fact, in his first race for Congress, had been, received the endorsement of the United Auto Workers. Um, and who, when he got to Congress, one of the first things he did was to join 80 other members of the House in signing on to a petition for in effect, world federalism. I mean, <laughs> that was, or, or, or a, a great, great story, uh, born, of course, of his own experience. One of the first bills he introduced as a congressman would, in effect, have federalized child support payments. Well, guess what? Uh, his near-do-well birth father had never made the court-ordered payments uh, to Ford's mother. Uh, she eventually took him to court, actually had him jailed overnight. But um, in any event, Congress was not ready in 1949 to expand federal authority. Well, fast forward a quarter century. In 1975, one of the first bills that crosses Ford's desk, uh, in effect, is an updated and expanded version of what he had proposed back in 1949. He signed it, but typical of Ford, and it gets to your earlier question, the, the overarching question of why don't we know this man better, he signed the bill and never mentioned a word about his own intensely personal connection to the issue. I mean, I can't think of another president or politician who would pass up that opportunity, but uh, that was Ford. Uh, you tell uh, another I mean, I, well, you tell a lot of poignant stories, but I, I'm just speaking of one, one, ones that grabbed me. And one was the during the 1976 campaign, which is 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 heated not only in the primary but also with with President uh, President Ford and Jimmy Carter at the time. Uh, James Norton, the New York Times uh, reporter, uh, writes that Jack Ford. Uh, is better at campaigning than, quote, <laughs> his old man. Yes. <laughs> now, the press True. corps, the press, after the story is released, the press corps is getting on Air Force One, and Jack Norton gets a, uh, James Norton gets a note that the president wants to see him. And he thinks Ford is upset of the story. I'll let you take it from there. Well, yeah, it's absolutely typical. And it's a great, it's a, uh, on your part, uh, discerning. Uh, Naughton goes back to the presidential cabin with more than a little trepidation and 
both the president and Mrs. Ford are there, big smiles on their faces, welcoming him, um, thanking him for this article that had been, in effect, less about Gerald Ford and more about his son, who, by the way, was uh, a natural campaigner. And it was the pride they felt in their son. And But more, more personal than that, you know, the president said, you know, of all the kids, Jack has found it the most difficult uh, adapting to life in the White House. And uh, clearly he and his and Jack's mother uh, were concerned about the consequences of this life that none of them had ever asked for and what it might portend for the future. And Naughton's article in the Times really sort of put those concerns to rest. So far from uh, uh, criticizing him, um, well, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, there's this wonderful, wonderful incident. The um, uh, chief usher, Gary Walters, his first day on the job, it's a Sunday, and he gets a call. He said that this is the president. He says, I, I don't have any hot water in my shower. Well, shades of Lyndon Johnson, who, of course, when that happened, uh, turned the place upside down uh, to get uh, sufficient pressure. Uh, anyway, Ford, Gary Walters, first day of the job, is doesn't really know what to do. He said, well, you know, it's Sunday. We don't have an engineer here. But while you're at church, I'll get some people working on it. We'll fix it for you right away, Mr. President. Ford said, don't worry. I, there's no rush. He said, I haven't had hot water for two weeks. I, I just I went down the hall and used Mrs. Ford's shower. Well, I mean, that's a tiny but very revealing kind of snapshot of, uh, of how Ford dealt with power and the perquisites that come with it and the contrasts between the relationships that he developed with, for example, the permanent staff at the White House, uh, the contrast between his relationships with those of perhaps some other presidents we might mention. Now, you obviously knew the Fords, you utilized, you, you, you eulogized, I'm sorry, both former President Ford and former First Lady Betty Ford. Were there challenges to what I would consider to be a dispassionate biography, given that personal relationship that you experienced? Well, you know, that's a great question. And it's the question I asked myself. There, there, there are two responses to that. Uh, no, I never doubted for a moment, because I've been doing this for 40 years, and I've written a number of books about people who I, you know, have various levels of admiration for. And, uh, and you know, they've passed that critical test. Uh, you know, I always say you want to be passionate about what you're doing and dispassionate about how you do it. So I never doubted that I could stand back and detach myself, in effect. Um, what I wasn't sure of was whether people, frankly, like you and, and reviewers and readers would accept that, would, uh, would, would, would read what I'd read and, and in fact, react as you and, and so far, but everyone else has. So there was not a problem in writing um, if I found something that I thought uh, you know deserved criticism, I didn't hesitate to criticize. Although even there, 
quite frankly, I'm old fashioned. I, I am of the school that says it's up to the reader to form their own judgments. Uh, you, you present um, information that you think will help them do so, but you credit them with having the intelligence and the judgment to make their own decision. So when I say criticism, it's a, it's a, a, a muted form of, of criticism. It's including information, for example. For example, one, one great example, on the Warren Commission, Ford worked very hard uh, on the commission. Um, I think he turned in a very credible performance. Unknown to most people, he was the first and the last member of the commission to seriously entertain thoughts of a foreign conspiracy. However, at the same time, without telling anyone, and certainly without telling Earl Warren, uh, he'd cut a deal uh, with Life magazine to write an extensive article about the workings of the commission and uh, with a friend had a, a deal with Simon and Schuster uh, to write a book about Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, both of which I think ethically are objectionable. And I think they permanently soured his relationship with Earl Warren. Um, and I don't have a good theory, a good explanation, except to be perfectly honest with you, um, Ford never had any money, and he may very well have seen this as an opportunity uh, to correct that deficiency. Okay, finally, um, you know, as I as I said in the opening to you off the air, uh, Richard Norton Smith, your work is very familiar to me. I've been watching you for decades on C-SPAN, and um, and among your many achievements. You have worked for Senators Edward Brooke and Bob Dole. You directed uh, the Herbert Hoover, Dwight Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan Presidential Libraries. You've written books on Thomas Dewey, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, in addition to the one on President Ford. So I, I see a through line here. And the through line is you seemingly have this penchant for Republican stalwarts that are hard to come by these days. So my question to you is, when do you plan on doing a book on Jack Kemp? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, it's funny. People tag me, and I understand, as a, quote, Republican historian. Um, and I, I guess that um, I understand it. I think if you step back, a lot of this, of course, was coincidence. You know, the libraries, one followed another. Um, and by the way, ended with the Lincoln Library in Illinois, where I decided, uh, or I was in, uh, I learned the hard way that success in Illinois government consists of, of getting out uh, before the indictments arrive. Uh, and I managed to do that. But I think the pattern, I see historical figures who have been largely overlooked. I mean, Tom Dewey was, or, or stereotyped, Dewey was seen as the little man on the wedding cake and not the, the gangbuster who electrified moviegoers, you know, in the 1930s and really began to remake the Republican Party in the 1940s. Um, I wrote a book about George Washington's last years. Why? Because the best way I thought to humanize Washington was not to write about false teeth or Sally Fairfax, but to follow this aging man 
whose memory is failing, uh, whose education is uh, meager in the formal sense, as day by day, he demonstrates nothing short of political genius. Um, so I, I'm looking for the untold story, if you will. And I think that's a bipartisan uh, impulse. Well, you, you certainly uh, achieved that in, in space because you've written a number of uh, untold stories in, in these 800 pages with President Ford, and I commend you for it. Uh, Richard Norton Smith, I want to thank you, sir. It has truly been an honor to be in, in conversation with you during this time. Thank you for being on The Public Morality. Thank you so much, and thank you for what you do and how you do it. It's much appreciated. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.